2: The first thing that comes to mind is the fact that there were so many people who dressed up in formal wear. Wow. I, I was in a tuxedo. I mean, Sure. A tuxedo for an NBA basketball game on opening night, and I remember pe- people tailgating. It was a small parking area outside that temporary arena, 10,333. That was the number, and people were tailgating out there in their tuxedos, and they had piped music into the outside speaker system it had a regal sound to it it was like the queen and and her court were arriving in sacramento and now,
0: to have you on for the show today my guest is coming up in just a moment but i want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by new works plumbing they are locally owned in sacramento for over 20 years they do it all leak detection water line repair bathroom plumbing hey new works plumbing is a full service plumbing solution no matter how small or how large your plumbing problem they've got to fix for you. And remember, they're expert technicians. They're available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to NewWorksPlumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. My guest on today's podcast has had an absolutely amazing career in broadcasting. It spans many, many decades. Uh, Back in 1985, he called the first ever game for the Sacramento Kings after they moved from Kansas City. And here we are in 2021, and he's still doing the same thing. He's had an incredible network career doing the NFL on NBC. He's done the Olympics for NBC. He's done motor racing, the Indianapolis 500 on ABC, and Wingo on and on. He's just had a glorious career. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Gary Gerald. G man, it's so great to have you on. How are you, sir? Well, I'm I'm more than tolerable. Thank you very
2: much. (laughs) It's very kind of you to reach
0: out. Oh man, you know, I really would love to and due to time constraints, I want to keep this to Sacramento, but you started in Sacramento, you know, on local TV. What was it like back in those days at KCRA doing
2: sports? I've been blessed in, in many areas. And one of them was was the fact that I got a chance to work at KCRA Television Channel 3 at a time when the news truly came first. Money was absolutely no object. And as I recall, I don't believe there was even a budget for the news operation. And one of the things that was so cool was the fact that as a sports guy, you know, you had opportunities. You went to the the first Super Bowls. You went to the World Series. You went to the Masters. You went to Indianapolis. You hit all of these glamoury events that you know was unheard of for an intermediate market in television to be able to do. And I I always have appreciated that about Channel Three. And it wasn't until the the later stages of my I think I was there for about a dozen years that. Influence from outsiders, consultants became part of the broadcast business, money became more of a topic, but it was it was kind of an unprecedented time. And Grant, when I came to Sacramento as part of the news operation at Channel 3, there were more than 50 people in the news department, wow. and that was wow. huge. I mean, it was much yep. larger than any of the news departments in San Francisco or L.A. or comparable markets anywhere in the country
0: you know what i love about kcra and they still do it today where the news comes first it's not just a slogan they back it up completely i remember when i moved to sacramento it was stan atkinson and margaret pelly and shelly monahan and bob hoag and creighton sanders and christine hansen and you're right they didn't spare any expense but it didn't really matter if you if they were televising a big time sports event and there was a big breaking news story they left sports and they never deviated from their mantra where the news comes first
2: it was extraordinary and it was, it was so unusual. And then you contrast that to, you know, today sure. where the sports people are lucky if they get two and a half minutes, you know, for their segment. I had Greg
0: lukenbill on the podcast recently, and we talked a lot about getting Kansas City and the Kings to move to Sacramento. You had a very interesting seat for all of that in perspective because you accompanied Luke and others to Kansas City before the team moved here to Sacramento. Did you feel during those early stages before 85 that it was truly going to happen, or were you skeptical about it all coming together?
2: I was a little skeptical, but I was also very naive. I didn't know how how those things worked, and you know how what had to progress, what had to happen, how much influence there was from, say, governmental regulations and agencies, and trying to get facilities built and one thing or another. So I didn't I didn't have much of a, a, a broad base in terms to to look at and to to get a real feel for it. I was extremely hopeful because at that time, you know. As much as I love basketball, the basketball was going to see Kennedy High School games, and they were really good at <laughs> right. time under Spider Thomas. And going out to Sac State and seeing the the Hornets play in that little cracker box of a gymnasium that they still play in today. So it was it was really kind of you know you're you're hoping, but you're almost afraid to get your hopes up. And and what Luke did in in bringing the Kings to Sacramento and slapping up basically a glorified warehouse as the first arena for them to play. And he did it in a matter of months it was really unusual and extraordinary, but it was so exciting because people were just, they were just upside down. They were giddy with the fact that, you know, for the first time Sacramento was going to have yep. an honest to goodness, professional sports franchise.
0: Gee, man, you grew up in big 10 country, grew up in Michigan, went to college in Indiana, Before I came to Sacramento in 1987, I had worked in Champaign, Illinois, in that area for three years, and so I covered the Big Ten, and Lou Henson was the basketball coach at Illinois, Bobby Knight was at Indiana, and when I first came to Sacramento and went to a game for the first time in the 87-88 season, I I could not believe it. I honestly thought that I was back covering the Big Ten. That atmosphere in that building, there was nothing like it in the league, was there?
2: No, it really wasn't. And it was novel and and people, including myself as a a young broadcaster, I didn't know the NBA game. I didn't know the personnel, but people were just so excited. And and sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the Kings sold out almost the first 500 games they played Mm -hmm. in Sacramento, which still stands as one of the top 10 longest uh, streaks in attendance in NBA history.
0: I wasn't obviously there for the first game in 1985. My first ever telecast in Sacramento was the opening of the new arena in 1988. Do you remember that night on uh, in 1985? What was that like?
2: Well, it, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that there were so many people who dressed up in formal wear. Wow. I, I was in a tuxedo. I mean, sure. a tuxedo for an NBA basketball game on opening night. And I remember people tailgating. It was a small parking area outside that temporary arena. And uh, 10,333, that was the number. And people were tailgating out there in their tuxedos. And they had piped music into the outside speaker system. And it was, it featured, you know, the, it had a regal sound to it. It was like the queen and and her courts were arriving in Sacramento. It was just it was a very bizarre, uh, but a very distinct introduction to professional sports in Sacramento.
0: And it was truly a family atmosphere. I know you're very close with Eddie Johnson and many others on that team. I'm close with Reggie Theus. I'm close with Joe Klein. And I can go on and on with the players that, that came and went in those years, particularly in the 80s. That was so unique, G-Man. It really, truly was like a family atmosphere.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I think back with a great deal of fondness, uh, my wife Marlene and I, uh, our home was, was open. And at that time, many of the players in those early years had homes in the Greenhaven pocket area where, where our home was. And so it was not at all unusual. We would have, you know, a holiday, get together. And, and the players didn't make the mega money in those days. And so there was there was more of a realistic touch. There wasn't a huge gap. That there is now, in just from a financial standpoint, you know a Lionel Simmons, a Reggie Theus, a Bill Winnington, and Eddie Johnson, a Wayman Tisdale. These people, Rory Sparrow. I mean, yep. they were frequent visitors in our small, modest home, and and it was really it was really a cool time, and and it was just you know you build bonds, and like you say, you're friends with these people that from thirty five, thirty six years ago. And those friendships have stood the test of time, largely because of those early years when we all just somehow found a way to bond together. Well, I
0: remember on Thanksgiving, you know, uh, the Tisdales and Regina said, hey, you come on over to our house. You know, I was single. I, I was alone. And, you know, I went over there and like, you know, half the team's over there. And it was just like an open door policy. And you just don't see that now. You know, I, I Wayman Tisdale. I mean, gosh, I mean, truly one of my favorite uh, individuals, G-Man. He, he was such a bright light. He was so effervescent. Regina and that whole family. And again, you. you don't see that anymore
2: no you don't and i you know it was funny because we all knew you know wayman had this affinity toward music he grew up in a in a, a church atmosphere his father was a minister and uh my son bobby who was big into music and he and wayman had a special bond even though wayman was was you know much much older but uh they would, they would set and sometimes Wayman would come over to our house and they'd go in Bob's room and they'd just play music (laughs) and walls would be vibrating one thing or another. And it was just, you know, Wayman would carry his, uh, his bass guitar with him on, on King's trips and he'd have on headphones and he'd be playing that bass. And, and just working away, and then you know, he evolved into a tremendous jazz musician. Sure and, did, and had a terrific career after his basketball days were over.
0: Gee, man, can you believe that I'm talking to you, and you're doing the Kings now for your 36th year at age 80, and you're just as good as ever? I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it?
2: Well, it's it's an extraordinary opportunity, and I, I appreciate the fact that that you acknowledge that. And I, uh, you know, it's 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 a different <clears throat> game now, particularly because of you know, the virtual broadcasts and the fact that, you know, you don't travel with the team because of the COVID complications and trying to call games off a a large monitor at the arena. And you're really kind of held captive by that particular television feed that you're receiving and how you try to work around it. And there were a lot of things that make it a a total different way to call games than than we're all used to. But by the same token, that's just, that's just simply the way it is. But to have the opportunity at, at my age is still extraordinary. And there are things that I get frustrated about and I feel like I didn't do a good enough job there, or I misidentified somebody. Or, you know how it is. It's just, sure. you know, you always want to have a really strong, stellar broadcast. And some nights are going to be better than others. And some of that's dictated by the success of the team that you happen to be calling for. And Right now, the Kings are riding that roller coaster once again. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. some good nights occasionally, and then there are some nights that you just scratch your head and say, How in the world did they allow this to happen? You know, I always tell young broadcasters
0: and people that ask me about this profession, and I, I know you can relate because you've done so many different uh, sports, whether it's the NFL, whether it's the Olympics, but the one thing about our business, you can't forecast and you can't predict when the big moment's going to come. And we as broadcasters are judged by how we call the biggest of plays in games. And I know you can relate to that. And there is no better feeling when you know that you just nailed a call that is the ultimate euphoria in our profession
2: and it's funny you mention that because you know i think about the ncaa tournament <clears throat> and that gonzaga amazing win over ucla on saturday and and you think about in being in the chair with a microphone in front of you yep. and calling that sequence in, in one of the greatest collegiate games maybe ever mm-hmm. and certainly probably among the top 10 all time but those are the moments you know, that any broadcaster lives for. You're absolutely right. And you, know, and you hope that you nail it and you hope you don't screw it up. I've never asked you this before because I was
0: blessed – to do a lot of the playoff games in the early 2000s because of your conflicts with uh, IndyCar and particularly the month of May at the Indy 500. As a matter of fact, I announced games three and four of the Western Conference Finals between the Kings and the Lakers with Robert Ori in that shot in game four. That was Memorial Day weekend, so that was Indy weekend. And of course, you would go there in the previous weekends as well. And as great as that opportunity was and how much you absolutely love motorsports how hard was it to announce a team for the whole season and then when the big games are there you're not able to do it because of your commitment to abc and indy i mean that that kind of a catch-22 is it not
2: absolutely i mean i I agonized on those games and i would try i remember getting back from the indy 500 getting back into the hotel that game number four and when Ori knocks down that three to end the ball game after the back tap by Vladi. And you think the Kings have got it and they taken control of the series. I, I was, I was just so frustrated and so enraged. And I, I remember I knocked over a couple of chairs yep. in the hotel room and it was just, it was agony. And because, you know, you, you were work with a team for so long and so many years, and obviously you want them to have success and here they are on the threshold of the biggest moment in franchise history, and somehow that one moment that's still locked in all of our memory banks just led to the greatest frustration. It was it was more than a gut punch. It was just it was so hard to describe. But you're right. It was it was really really difficult at that time. You talk about a gut punch game
0: seven. The Kings missed fourteen free throws. You were on the call for that game. What do you remember the most about that entire day?
2: Well, you mentioned the free throws. That stands out. The fact that there was an opportunity to knock down a three at the end of regulation that would have either sealed the deal or put it, I I don't remember. It did go to overtime. Yes, it it did. Yeah, that would have been a game winner. It was just, the atmosphere was so electric and people were so ready and and so hungry and to be so close to a possible chance to compete for an NBA championship in the final series. I, I just remember that it was, an extraordinary time, in that it was there was so much anticipation and there was so much anxiety and concern and could this team live up to it? But that team was so good that you had the confidence that they could handle the situation, despite you know a Kobe Bryant and a Shaquille O'Neal and how good the Lakers were with Bill Jackson, etc. So it was a it was a magical time, but boy, the disappointment is still. You know, and this is now what? This is 19 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still such a bitter, bitter pill when you think about it. 36th year of calling
0: NBA basketball for the Sacramento Kings. What's the best part of your job and what's the worst part?
2: Good question. Uh, the best part, which has been altered now because of the COVID restrictions, I always thought the best part was just the interaction that you were able to have with the coaching staff, with the front office, with the players, with the equipment managers, with the media relations people. This season, there's no face to face opportunities. I mean, even when home games, you're sitting up there in your broadcast position at plaza level at Golden One Center, and you're seeing all these people that you know so well down on the floor, but you can't you can't talk to them eye to eye and face to face. And that's a real disappointment and a real frustration because that, as I say, I think that was probably the best part of the job. The worst part of the job, it's not, it's not the regimen. It's not the ungodly hours uh, with the travel that we were so accustomed to. It was just the fact that I think you get ingrained. It's, it's part of your being after so many years being with the organization, and you want them desperately to find success. And when success has been so limited and so hard to come by, since those glory years under Rick Adelman and, and, and with the Kings at their prime in the early 2000s, it's just so difficult when you see them failing to perform, when you know that they've got the capability of being better than what you're seeing. I think to me, that's probably the, the most difficult part. You know, G-Man, I
0: think you and I are a, lo- a lot alike. We don't miss games. And, you know, we, there are times when our family really needs us and we still have a job to do. And we know about your daughter, Beth, and you lost her uh, a year ago and you were still going on the road. You were still doing everything that you normally do, uh, your preparation, uh, Beth was, uh, some of you know, as, has been well chronicled was, uh, had health issues, um, was had to be just excruciating Gary for you not to be there at certain times. When you look back, it was, is that the hardest period of time you've had to go through in your broadcasting career?
2: It was as difficult as anything I can remember. Yeah, no, no, no question. Uh, because you're, you know, you're trying to be faithful to your responsibilities as a professional. You want <clears throat> to, you know, block those types of things out of your mind during broadcasts so that you try to do the job to the best of your ability. But they still encroach, and and sometimes at the strangest times you would flash on a moment, and you, you'd remember when <clears throat> you know Beth and Bob and Marlene were always at All Kings Games, mm-hmm. and remember how Beth and Bob knew all the different players and had great relationships with so many of them. And, uh, it, it was, it was a high stress. There's no question about it. You know, we all go through things of similar nature. It's just part of life, but trying to deal with it on a daily basis was, was really <laughs> difficult. It was <clears throat> as difficult as it was when the future of the Kings was in question. And, it looked like for sure that they were going to be leaving Sacramento and that, you know, after 25 years of of Kings basketball, it looked like it was all coming to an end. That was an extraordinarily difficult time. But when it's your family and when a life is at stake, uh, it, it just takes it to a different level. And I can only say, Grant, that, you know, the support of people like yourself, your wife, Star, uh, the members of the Kings organization from you know, the front office, to the coaching staff, to the players, so many reached out, so many had compassion, so many had such marvelous support. And even sometimes months after Beth passed, a random phone call from someone in the King's past who had just learned and was reaching out to to say, if there's anything we can do, if you need to talk, whatever, we're available. I can't tell you how much that means and, and, and what that support has meant. To, to our family. Absolutely phenomenal, G man.
0: Absolutely phenomenal to hear that. You grew up in Michigan. When did your love of motorsports begin?
2: Well, I didn't know much about motorsports. There was a there was a track not too far from, from my home, but I didn't ever have an opportunity. I just didn't have the means and uh, uh, didn't have the funding and didn't have access to a car where I could go to this track. I, I went to it on a couple of different occasions. And that kind of, you know, it was intriguing to me. But it wasn't until I moved to California. We were living in Chico, north of Sacramento, about 100 miles. And at the fairgrounds in Chico, they had a a quarter-mile dirt track. And as a news and sports guy at a small-town radio station at KHSL in Chico, on Friday nights, which was race night at the old fairgrounds there, I would take my news car, and I'd go out and park in the infield, and I would do updates, you know, every half hour or sometimes even more than that on race results. Here are your heat winners tonight. Here's the Trophy Dash winner. You know, who's going to be in the main event, one thing or another. And we're really excited tonight because so-and-so from Sacramento has brought his sprint. Car he'll be <laughs> competing here in the open class. And, and that's when I really got hooked on, on the racing. And then when we moved to Sacramento, there was a dirt track, West Capital Raceway in West Sacramento. And I became the track announcer out mm. there. And that provided some challenges. Initially, when I was just a fan, I was going out there on mm. Saturday nights was race night in West Sacramento. And I would leave Channel Three and I'd run out there and they had a they gave me a parking spot right next to the front gate. So I could run in, I'd watch as much as I could. And then at ten minutes to eleven, I knew I had to race back across the the river into Sacramento and slide into my chair for the headlines at you know, ten fifty nine at channel three and I would pray that the the bridge wouldn't happen to be up, you know, and that I wouldn't right. get stuck waiting for the bridge to come down so I could race across and there were a couple of times when I did miss the headlines on Saturday night at channel three. But then if the main event was still going on, then as soon as the, the studio I was done, I was out the door and I was back to West Sacramento. And checking the last few laps of the main event. So that's, that's where I really got hooked on racing.
0: From that to being in the pace car, leading the 33-car field at the Indianapolis 500 live on ABC to this day. And I've been blessed like you have to do a lot of neat things in my career. But when I saw you in that convertible pace car leading the field, and let's go down to Gary Gerald, and you're doing a live report with 400,000 people. That had to be just the most exhilarating, unbelievable experience imaginable.
2: Grant, you just you just describing that, and I got chill bumps all over me. I mean, <laughs> I got chicken skin, brother. That was, <laughs> to this day, that, that's still one of the all-time, all-time highlights. I got to do that on two occasions at Indianapolis, and that was at a peak time when the Indy 500 was still king and when there was legitimately 350 to 400,000 people surrounding that, uh, that great racetrack and to be at the head of the field, looking back over your shoulder and seeing those 33 cars, 11 rows of three weaving back and forth, building heat in their tires and trying to describe that moment, uh, just, oh, beyond extraordinary. And, I, and again, I just, I get chills thinking about it. It was magical. I say Mario Andretti, you say what? Well, I say consummate pro. He is, you know, he's been a friend for so many years. Rarely we have an opportunity in this day and age to to still say hello to each other. But he's he's my age. He's just a a wee bit older than me at uh, age 80. And uh, we've had some terrific times over the years. And I, I just... I think about his great career and a Formula One championship and the one win at Indy driving for Andy Granatelli and, of course, the, the kiss from Granatelli in Victory Lane at <sighs> Indy, which is one of the classic signatures, 1969, I think it was. And I think about it, so many other times coming so close but unable to have success at Indianapolis. And I, there's just kind of an anguish uh, within because he was such an extraordinarily good race driver, But in my mind, he's an extraordinarily good human being. And I just I love the fact that he continues to be involved in motorsports. He's he's up front. He's he's been driving, you know, the two seat race cars for years. And I I just I love the guy. That's that's it. I love Mario Andrade.
0: What was it like being on the infield? And walking over to a guy like AJ Foye, Indy 500, who just got knocked out of the race because of an accident, and ABC's like, "G man, you're going. We need AJ on." <laughs> I gotta tell you, man, I can't even imagine.
2: Sometimes you quake in your boots. <laughs> but you know, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll try to make it quick. You got all the time there in the world. Race that we did at Michigan, the Michigan 500. AJ had an accident. Had to go to the care center. <laughs> And, you know, belligerent A.J., just, you know, he didn't want to be in the care center. He's a tough Texan, and by God, get me out of here. And he didn't want to talk to the media, but he did agree to talk to me as he came out of the care center in the infield at the Michigan 500. And it was like I was his long-lost buddy. <laughs> that was great. We did our interview, and then he goes on and leaves the track or whatever. The following week, where it. Pocono in Pennsylvania. AJ gets knocked out of the race. I know what's going to happen because at that time it was kind of a sunken infield and the garages were down there. And so I grabbed my cameraman and said, let's go. We're going to go down to his garage because he's not going to go to the pits and stop. He's going to drive right to the garage. Well, I was absolutely right. As he's getting out of the race car and he sees me coming with the cameraman and I'm thinking, here's my buddy from a week ago. I hear him with his helmet on saying, you can tell NBC (laughs) to kiss my freaking freak. (laughs) Not once, not twice. He gets out of the car and he (laughs) stomps into the garage and out of the darkness of the garage with only the. The individual door open, not the big garage door opens. The race car's still sitting out there <laughs> a third time. You can tell NBC to kiss my bleep and bleep. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm totally mystified. What the heck is going on? Yeah. As it turns out, I find out later, he saw some kind of a feature that NBC did during the course <laughs> of the week about a rival car owner, Pat Patrick, and it just turned him upside down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, incredible. You know, that, I, even that, Grant, and it went, uh, one more quick yeah. story. He got knocked out of a race by one of the young Andretti's, Jeff oh, boy. Andretti, on a short track in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is the home of the Andretti's. And he gets out of the car, and we're there, and I didn't even ask a question. And he went on this 30 second tirade. And in that, when I played it back, it was live television. <laughs> And they didn't, they couldn't believe it. Eight cuss words in something like 27 or 28 seconds. Mm, and I never wow. even asked the question. That was AJ Ford. You know, uh, motorsports
0: can be very dangerous and there is death on the track. And when you're on a circuit like that, you get to know wives and you get to know families and pit crews. And you, you really get involved with individuals because you're you're with them Every week during this season, I can't even imagine how hard that must be. I know that death is almost accepted as a part of. Well, gee, okay, we're going to go 200 miles an hour. We all understand the risks, and we all get it. But, but boy, when there's tragedy at a track, is there? Uh, how do you deal with that, Gary?
2: It's it's the hardest thing there is uh, to do in terms of of, of motorsports. And you're right; you get to to know these people. You know their families. You know, the, the anxiety that's created when there is a bad accident, and then in the instances when someone loses their life, uh, unfortunately, uh, I was put in a situation three or four different times during my network career when I was the one who was called upon to break the news that someone had lost their life. Mm. And I can't think of anything more difficult uh, in my broadcast career that I've, that I've ever been challenged to do. And... Uh, It just, you have to find a way to try to be, you know, strong and not let your own emotions overcome what you're saying. But those emotions are real and they're there. And it's happened to me too many times. It's happened to me with sprint cars. It happened in the IndyCar circuit uh, multiple times. It happened in the drag racing circuit one time. When Scott Galetta lost his life and I, he virtually, his car ended up uh, within, uh, you know, 20, 30 yards from where I was standing. And and I just, I can't convey to you, Grant, what that is like. Mm. It's just, it's a nightmare. And yet, somehow, the people who are involved in the sport have reconciled themselves to the fact that this, you know is a potential happening. Mm-hmm. And and they deal with it better than the rest of us who are on the periphery of the sport. But one of the most vivid images in my mind, and one of the most tragic images in my mind, on that day in New Jersey when Scott Coletto lost his life, I'm I'm sitting at the end of the racetrack and I'm just I'm disconsolate and I can only imagine You know, I'm trying to process what I've seen and what's happening. And Scott Coletta's father, Connie Coletta, who is a legendary figure in the sport of drag racing, came to the end of the track. And he went over and he started looking at the remnants Mm. of the race car. And that's forever etched in my mind. And it just uh, it brings me almost to tears right now to just think about what that father was having to process that his son had just lost his life moments earlier. And I, I, it's an extraordinary experience, but it's not an experience you would want anyone that you know or love to ever have to, to go through. I cannot even
0: imagine talking about experiences. You were blessed to be on the network level, not only at ABC, but NBC doing the NFL on NBC. You did the Olympics in Seoul, you look back at those years, how phenomenal was that to be doing NFL football? I know, I think, didn't you work with Sam Ritigliano for a while?
2: Yes, I did. I loved working with Sam. Sam was I great. I worked with a lot of different analysts, and, and I found out later that, that one of the reasons I worked with so many was because they knew that I could handle those types of situations and that, you know, I've never, I've never felt like I'm a big ego person. And as much as I relished and cherished the fact that I was able to do NFL football, uh, I could be the, the the traffic cop, and I knew how to bring a guy in and out. And so there were a lot of <clears throat> really interesting names that I got to work with over the years. But I love working with Ritigliano because as a coach, you, as you will know, coaches deal with every aspect of the game. Yep, They have knowledge on any situation that comes up. And so it was always a real pleasure to be able to work with with. Tigliano in the boot just be, just because of that
0: I was at Bowling Green when he was coaching the Browns and you know the Brian Sy interception against the Raiders and that was you know the, the back then you know the Browns were real close to being mm-hmm. finally on their way and but uh, I got a chance to talk uh, with him a couple of times what, what a what a fascinating individual I love talking with Sam
2: yeah and, and, and that's the thing you know about the, in the coaching ranks, as you get to know some of these people, and it that's true in any sport or in any business, as sure. you get to know people, you you understand and you appreciate, you know, their journey to success and the things that they've experienced and how they articulate it and how they've handled different situations and the stories that they can tell and and it's just you know, what a what a marvelous opportunity to be exposed to that because so many We're all fans at heart, but so many fans never have that chance to have a one-on-one relationship with a key individual player or a coach or an administrator or whatever. And it it was just – it was a fascinating time, and I just – I absolutely loved it, Grant. It was just – you worked your ass off. I mean, sure. at that time, you didn't have the computer access to provide you with all the information, and you had to rely on – FedEx packs that the network would send you and that the media relations directors from the teams, and you'd get a call on Monday and say, okay, Gary, this weekend, you're going to be working with so-and-so at such-and-such for such-and-such a game, and then you'd plunge in, and you know, you'd just immerse yourself trying to become fully comfortable in knowing what's going on with each of these teams and their organizations so that it was like you have been following that team all season long and that's what that's what you had to do to be, to be prepared and ready for those games. And gosh, it was it was it was a marvelous experience and I I cherished those years and I I got about 8 years and I, I got a chance to work about 50 games and I was low on the totem pole of course. I was like with the fifth, sixth, seventh units and you didn't get the big marquee games, you didn't get the national games or stuff like that, but you were working NFL football and it was a dream come true. I I absolutely loved that opportunity. And I still, you're right. You look back and you just, you cherish those experiences.
0: Well, the Olympics, NBC at Seoul, no expense spared when you're doing that type of a, a a job. That had to be remarkable, getting ready for the Olympics, seeing how it all comes together. You're just a small part of it. But again, no expense spared. that thats That's big time, isn't it?
2: It, it was big time, and you're right. No expense was spared, and you know even that has changed so much now because so many different events for Olympics are called stateside in a studio, you know, in Bristol, sure. Connecticut, or in Charlotte, North Carolina, or, or different places. And at that time, you know, you were there, you were on site. And my Olympic experience, you know, I was in Seoul for five weeks, even though the games only occurred over two weeks. Wow, that's incredible. So to have that time there, and then the fact that you know. Marlene could come and join me. I was on a select list. I I remember one day getting this notice in the mail saying uh, the following are, you can take your wives or significant others if you would like. And there were like 30 names or so on there. And my name happened to be one of them and I could take my wife. And just, you think about the grand experiences and you talk about money being no expense. I had the privilege of being able to work at a network level at a time when money didn't matter. And there wasn't the proliferation of cable television stations. You know, in any market, Mm -hmm. the most channels, there was ABC, there was NBC, there was CBS, and there might be one or two independents. And that was it, basically. To be able to go to an Olympics and to be able to take your wife and to be able to receive per diem, to be able to have tickets to opening, closing ceremonies, to any event you wanted to go to Any event that Marlene wanted to go to, how special was that, man? That's a cool deal right there. G man,
0: finally, when when you look back at your career
2: to this point,
0: is there anything you really wanted to do announced that you didn't get an opportunity to?
2: Hmm, I can't say that there is. I I've never done soccer. I've never done other than some regional baseball. I've never done hockey. And I, I mean, I mean, I know you're a red hot hockey fan as yep. well, Nates. Over the years, and I think that that would be the most difficult game of all to call. I have so much respect for hockey announcers. Never had a chance to do those, but I, you know, that that didn't break my heart. I've just the things that I've gotten to do so far exceed what I dreamed of being able to do as a young aspiring broadcaster. And I, I mean, I recall days on my paper route, people now don't even know what a paper route is. <laughs> right. After, right. After school trudging through the, the snow and the, uh, the Michigan winters and oh all in basketball games in my head and thinking about someday I may get a chance to do that. And then to go from that to what I've been able to enjoy in my now 80 years is just, uh, yeah. what a journey, what a ride. And, and the fact that I still get, to do something that I'm passionate about, man, it's it's special. And I know you you share that. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because you just relish those opportunities and you dream about them and you yep. get to do it. And you just say, man, how cool is this?
0: Well, gee, man, not as cool as you. Uh, it's been such a treasure being around you for decades and decades and watching how you go about your job and everything that you and I shared, you know, we're like family. And uh, those, those are, those are memories that uh, I'll take with me to my grave, G-Man. I can't thank you enough for your friendship and uh, all the great memories that we uh, shared together. And it's just fabulous to be able to reminisce and have you on my podcast. And I thank you greatly.
2: Well, Grant, thank you so much. And I I think about if the time ever comes and, we get back to traveling with the Kings and I'm going to look across the aisle and I'm not going to see you sitting there. And that's just not going to be right. No. Because for so many years, that was such a big part of, of our lives. And uh, I, I appreciate you and, and all of the different things that you've had success at and continue to have success at. And I wish you and star and your family uh, the best. I I see one of your sons from a distance, still, you know, working with the yep, Kings. Yep. And uh, I don't get a chance to because he's in he's in the red zone. I'm in the yellow zone. <laughs> he circle. has that special pass, G-man. That's right. Could yeah, you do Could you do me a favor? To, could you send a barber yeah. down
0: there and get his damn haircut? Could you do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last
2: time I saw him, I thought, "Whoa, he's got a pretty good growth going on here." I if this is, is this just COVID? Yeah. Or is this something he's decided has become his style? And G-man, you like this? Uh, speaking of
0: Chico. Chase is a a news producer at the TV station in Chico. He's been a news producer since July, so uh, he's behind the scenes doing that. that. Yes, he is. He's doing fabulous.
2: Well, that's great to hear. Chase and Trent Napier making their way through. Yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. Good to hear. Well, that was an awesome conversation
0: with the G Man Gary Gerald. Just phenomenal. Just what a class act, consummate professional Gary Gerald is. It is now time for our Q and A. Thanks to Crowd Ultra, Just go to CrowdUltra.com. Takes about a minute to sign up, and maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. Matts asks, is any part of you glad you weren't with the Kings this season? No, I love my job. I did it for 32 years. I love announcing NBA basketball, win, lose, draw, whatever. No, absolutely not. Uh, Kyle wants to know, how do you grade the Sam Darnold trade? Well, you won't be able to grade it for a couple of years. You know, new coaching system in Carolina. We'll have to wait and see whether or not Darnold materializes into a good quarterback. But right now, Kyle, that is not anything that you can uh, grade. Jake wants to know, have politics overshadowed the start of this MLB season? Well, of course that has absolutely. Everybody's talking about the all-star game moving from Atlanta to uh, Colorado playing in Denver. Nobody's talking about major league baseball. That's not the top story. That becomes a secondary story. So, in my opinion, yeah, it ha- in the first week, yeah, it has overshadowed Major League Baseball. I really believe that. Adam wants to know, where the Jets definitely drafting Zach Wilson after trading Darnold? I don't know if I would say definitely. I would say, though, everyone feels that's what they're going to do. Uh, I wouldn't say it's etched in stone 100%. But I would say it's pretty damn close to that. That is for sure. Chris wants to know, Grant, are you doing the podcast production all by yourself? Or do you have another person doing the editing, website, and audio uploads? If so, that's impressive. I actually, Chris, it's a great question. I do have one individual uh, that helps me. And he does a fabulous job, as you can tell. Martin wants to know, what NBA franchises do you think are poorly run? Well, I would have to know what your definition is of poorly run. For instance, the Knicks, they sell out every game, obviously not talking about the pandemic. They have stunk to join out for year after year after year after year after year, and yet they're making an absolute ton of money. So how would you define that? Would you say they're poorly run? You'd have to, again, define for me what you mean as poorly run. Run, All right, Chase wants to know, are you surprised the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game was the lowest rated since 82? Not really. Uh, there was no way they could duplicate what happened Saturday between Gonzaga and UCLA. The Baylor Bears just walked all over the Zags. The game was never competitive. I think that really hurt the ratings. So I'm, I'm not that surprised. Uh, I'm really not. All right, Ian wants to know, can Nets win the championship with their terrible defense? I don't know the answer to that question because I haven't really seen the Nets on the floor altogether because they've had so many injuries. So once I see everyone on the floor together for a period of time, I think I'd be able and I think others would be able to answer that question. But it is obviously an issue. Rob asks, is there any possibility Deshaun Watson's lawsuits have to do with him wanting out of Houston? What you're saying I think, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is could this be a a conspiracy? I thought originally that was a possibility, but now that there are well over 20 uh, allegations, 20 pending lawsuits, now including uh, a criminal uh, case with the, I believe the Houston Police Department, no, I don't believe that could possibly uh, be the case. I'll have more on that coming up In just a moment, Nick wants to know, does Nick Saban saying he didn't talk to the Niners mean they aren't interested in Mac Jones? No, absolutely does not mean that at all, at all. All right, Kevin wants to know, do you think there will be any significant boycotting of the MLB after moving the All-Star game? I think that people boycott what time the sun and what time the sun sets now in this country. I think people boycott everything. I don't know what the hell. I, I, there's no rhyme or reason anymore. So I, I can't answer that question other than to say, well, everything else is being boycotted. So why not Major League Baseball? Uh, somebody wants to know, uh, it's David, have I seen the trailer for the new Space Jam? Nope, and I have very little interest in it. Derek wants to know, how long will it take for other teams to forget about the Astros cheating? It's not going to happen for a long time, particularly the fans. You saw what happened in week one. Mike wants to, or Mitch wants to know, is Sam Donald's career going to get better or worse in North Carolina? Well, if it doesn't get better, it will end up being a horrific trade. It can only get better. How could it be worse than what happened in New York? I I don't see that being possible. I really don't. Ernie wants to know who was better, Bibby or Jason Williams. Mike Bibby was. He wasn't as flashy, he didn't have the flair, but Mike Bibby was a better all-around player than Jason Williams and he was the most clutch guy that the Kings had uh, on their team uh, throughout that era. Jerry wants to know was Paul Pierce's firing justified? I can't answer that question. Only ESPN can answer. That question, Kevin wants to know: Where do you think Teddy Bridgewater will end up? That's a very good question. Very good question. You know, I like Teddy Bridgewater. I think he uh, has already proven a lot of people wrong by coming back from his horrific injury. That's a great question. Very good question. Dave wants to know: Have MLB umpires seemed bad to you this year? No, and I've watched quite a few games. I, I don't. I think that one of the problems when you watch major league baseball is that the K zone that you see on a lot of local telecasts is not a true indicator of whether it's a ball or a strike. And they use that religiously and it's just not accurate. So if that's what you're referring to, no, I don't believe that umpires have seemed bad to me this year at all. Uh, Someone wants to know when it's Pat, will Dwayne Dedman contribute more with the heat than he did in Sacramento. Well, we sure can only hope so if you're a fan of the Miami Heat. He was dreadful in Sacramento. Absolutely dreadful. Vince wants to know, is Bryson DeChambeau the man to beat in the Masters? No, I don't think he's the man to beat in the Masters. I don't think there is a man. Uh, I mean, to me, Dustin Johnson's the best golfer in the world. We saw what he did, you know, a couple of months ago there. I don't know if you saw round one, uh, but with no rain And the course is going to be brutal this weekend. It's going to be very difficult to put low scores up. I think DeShambeau at Augusta with the way that course is laid out with the trees, I think he's going to have a tough time. That's just my take on it. All right. Thank you very much. Our Q&A brought to you by our good friends at CrowdUltra. Just go to CrowdUltra.com. Sign up. I'll be happy to answer your question right here.
1: It's time for the rant. rant.
0: Time for the rant, and it is brought to you by Manscaped. Spring has sprung, and Manscaped has the best tools to get you ready. Manscaped are the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, and they have forever changed the grooming game with their amazing products. Hey, have you heard of their Weed Whacker? This nose and ear hair trimmer provides awesome skin-safe technology. It will help provide nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. And the premium Manscaped Weed Whacker uses a 9,000 RPM motor. It is powered 360 degree. It has a rotary dual-blade system. It is incredible. And speaking of, you know, incredible Manscaped products, let me tell you about their incredible Hygiene Manscaped with formulations to keep you fresh and ready for everything that comes your way all day. The Crop Preserver, anti shaving ball deodorant. The Crop Reviver, spray-on toner for your balls. And speaking of smelling fresh, how about complete your grooming game this spring with the new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped. Hey, folks, smell good, feel good this spring. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S at manscaped.com. That's 20% off That's right, 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S at manscaped.com. It's spring cleaning, baby, and your balls will thank you. Well, another day and more news coming out of the Deshaun Watson case. Nike has suspended their partnership and their sponsorship of Watson Beats by Dre, which is owned by Amazon, said goodbye, no more, and many other companies are following suit. And yet, Deshaun Watson has not been proven guilty of anything, although with each passing day, it looks worse and worse. I've talked a lot about this over the last three or four weeks right here on Grant's Rants, and I'm going to ask you this question. Do you know anybody, seriously now, can you name one person that you know in your life that has had as many different masseuses as Deshaun Watson? I mean, think about that for a minute. It makes no sense to me. Who the hell goes to that many masseuses? Uh, It's ridiculous. And again, that doesn't mean that Deshaun Watson is guilty of what is being alleged, but it sure as hell doesn't look good, does it? It sure doesn't look good. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago. If these allegations are true and found to be true, that means Deshaun Watson and his attorney, Rusty Hardin, are liars. No one really cares about his attorney. But that means Watson's a liar because he came out very early on in this whole debacle and said the allegations against me are false. I can't wait to get my name cleared. This is all nonsense. It's a cash grab, blah, blah, blah. Well... You know, again, I'm going to still just wait. But with each passing day, it is certainly looking worse and worse and worse for Deshaun Watson. And as far as football goes, if these allegations are true, I don't see him on the football field for a long, long time. And that's my rant for today. And thank you so much for checking us out. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Gary Gerald. Have yourself a fabulous weekend. Don't forget, check out my video rants over on YouTube as well. I really appreciate it. And if you're listening via Apple Podcast, rate the podcast. Would you please leave me a comment? It's greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier.
2: 18 plus.